It's become surprisingly apparent to me since assuming the position of NCA president last January that there's a confusion in the public and media with regard to what the NCA is, where its role as national office ends, and where the role of the NCA as a membership association begins. With every new issue that emerges in the media, there's the expectation that the national office and I, as president, should exert authority to set things right. In fact, the national office and the NCA president have no authority other than that explicitly granted by the more than 1,000 member colleges and universities. This is a critical point. The NCA is not an all-powerful presence, and the NCA president is not the omnipotent czar of college sports. Rather, the NCA is an association made up of universities and colleges that acts only after considerable deliberation, reflects the majority will of the membership, and authorizes the national office to execute its decisions. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. In this episode, we're going to begin our journey into analyzing who the stakeholders are in big-time college sports. And we're going to start with a group of the most important stakeholders, and those are the in-system stakeholders that include primarily the universities, the university presidents, the university governing boards, university faculties, all of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries that uh, comprise the insiders in big-time college sports. And there's no better place to begin than with the NCAA itself. This episode is titled, Meet the Circular Firing Squad. What exactly is the NCAA? And you may be asking yourself, where did I get the circular firing squad metaphor? Well, that came from Condoleezza Rice, who was chair of the Commission on College Basketball. And I mentioned Dr. Rice in episode one because she had some great quotes after that report was released that, uh, in my judgment, reflected her take on the whole business of big-time college sports. And it was not if – you, if you look carefully and you read between the lines a little bit, I think you can see that, that Dr. Rice wasn't fully on board with the NCAA party line. But in connection with the release of the report, and this was in April of 2018, and remember, this report was um, designed to tease out corruption in big-time college basketball, and there were some uh, issues that came to light in New York, and the Southern District of New York and the Justice Department put together a criminal case against some athlete agents and some assistant coaches, and we're going to talk a lot about that at some point, and it's a fascinating report. But for right now, I just want to tease out some of the ways that the commission, and particularly Dr. Rice, thought about the stakeholders. And so in connection with the release of the report itself, Dr. Rice put out a statement that she read in part publicly. But here's what she says. The crisis in college basketball is first and foremost a problem of failed accountability and lacks responsibility. The commission found that talking to the stakeholders was at times like watching a circular firing squad. The problem, the issue, and ultimately the fault was always that of someone else. 
It is time for coaches, athletics directors, university presidents, board of trustees, the NCAA leadership and staff, apparel companies, agents, pre-collegiate coaches, and yes, parents and athletes to accept their culpability in getting us to where we are today. So to truly analyze who the real stakeholders are, and, and Rice listed uh, you know, a number of them, but that was really a truncated list. There are a lot more. You really have to start stakeholder by stakeholder and also look at how they try to shift responsibility to other stakeholders. And that's an important part of this whole analysis because it's almost like this scam where it's almost unaccountability by design and in that unaccountability uh, operates this kind of shadowy business that nobody can really define because nobody can really, you know, with any specificity, figure out what the component parts are. And, and a perfect example of that is the quote that I began this podcast with. So in the music montage coming in, you heard a quote and uh, that quote was from Miles Brand, who uh, was former NCAA president, and I talked about him uh, in the last episode. And Dr. Brand was the first university president in modern times to hold the position of NCAA president, and that's consequential. But Brand was testifying, was called to testify at a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee in 2003. And the title of the hearing was Competition in College Bowl Games. And one of the components of this circular firing squad mentality is this uh, question about what the NCAA national office actually does. And the nas national office is located in India Indianapolis, Indiana. It has uh, all the NCAA executives there and has about 600 employees, has a massive budget. And we're not going to talk about money in this podcast. We're not getting to that yet. But it's, at some point, when we talk about where the money comes from and then where it goes, we're going to uh, take a real sharp pencil to the NCAA national office. But what Brand says about the NCAA national office is classic circular firing squad. And Mark Emmert, who took over for Brand in um, 2010, continued this same narrative, and, and he has made uh, this argument uh, in, in speeches and in congressional testimony. But Brand said, there's a confusion in the public and media with regard to what the NCAA is, where its role as national office ends, and where the role of the NCAA as a membership association begins. He says, in fact, the national office and the NCAA president have no authority other than that explicitly granted by the more than 1,000 member uh, colleges and universities. This is a crucial point. The NCAA is not an all-powerful presence, and the NCAA president is not the omnipotent czar of college sports. Rather, the NCAA is an association made up of universities and colleges that acts only after considerable deliberation and reflects the majority will of the membership and authorizes the national office to execute its decisions. So according to Brand and, and now Emmert, the NCAA is just doing the will of the membership. It's just doing the will of the people. And it is a passive actor that has no authority independent of the membership and direction from the membership. And that is a big fat fib. One of the things that is not understood 
is that the NCAA president has explicit and substantial and in this perfect storm era from two, 2006 to the present, probably some of the most important powers in the entire business model. And those reside solely with the NCAA president. And those powers are subject to review by the NCAA Board of Governors, which is the only association-wide governing body and the highest level governing body in the NCAA regulatory structure. But as I will explain in detail when we start talking about the relationship between the NCAA national office, the big-time football interests, and the big-time basketball interests, when Mark Emmert is exercising the authorities exclusively granted to him, He's not doing the will of the membership. He is doing the will of the Power Five conference representatives in the NCAA, the Power Five conference financial interests, the interests of the big media partners that are connected both to the football side and the basketball side, and particularly CBS and Turner, who have this multi-billion dollar contract that started in 1994 and goes into 2032 that makes the NCAA national office rich because all of that money runs through the NCAA. None of the football money does. And, and we're going to talk about that when we, when we talk about the history of how big time college sports has asserted its influence. But that's relevant to the governance model and what the NCAA is. Because beginning in the 1970s, the big time football interests in various forms and various uh, coalitions have dictated what the NCAA governance system was going to look like, how the entire association was structured. And they did that in order to protect their business interests and to keep as much of the money as they could and not have to spread it around to the rest of the association. And that was done by the powerful football interests under threats to leave the association. And they began before this Board of Regents decision, when the, when the uh, Power Five football interests were, you know, achieved their economic freedom from the NCAA. So the NCAA and the powerful football interests have had this traditional power struggle where the powerful football interests tell the NCAA what, what to do or they're going to leave. And then the NCAA does it. <laughs> and, and that has played out in uh, several different ways over the course of the evolution of the NCAA since the early 70s. We're going to talk about a few of them in, in talking about what the NCAA is, because when you look at the NCAA constitution and you look at its provisions under the organization section, I think that's article four of the NCAA constitution. And it talks about how the uh, organization is structured, who has authority, you know, uh, what the composition of all of these representative governing boards are. You see that the the interests and the actual structure of the NCAA is defined explicitly by football interests. So you have the, the FBS, which is the successor ca uh, category of NCAA schools to the former Division 1A. But the FBS schools, what does that stand for? Football Bowl Subdivision. 
and it is a collection of about 120 of the most powerful football schools in college sports, including the 65 members of the Power Five conferences. And they really are uh, the NCAA, and they, and they control the governance structure. And all of this stuff that you hear in public forums and congressional testimony and written uh testimony before Congress, in speeches, in public appearances, in news conferences, all revolves around this fantasy that the NCAA is this you know, democratic, egalitarian meritocracy where everybody has an equal vote. And there's this, uh, you know, sincere effort to sit down, you know, all the stakeholders at the same tables and talk about governance in a way that is consistent with the values of the organization. And that just, that just doesn't happen. It's, a, it's just one of the, these massive misconceptions about the NCAA. And the NCAA has been so good at marketing and propagandizing around it. So before I get to what I believe the NCAA really is, I want to discuss just briefly how the NCAA defines itself. And, and again, it, it must not be very good at, at doing this in a way that's understandable to the average fan, because even the NCAA president testifying before the Senate in 2003 had to explain uh, all the confusion, and he did it in a way that really misstated the true purpose and nature of the NCAA national office. But I think of it this way, if uh, if the NCAA propaganda philosophies and all of the narratives that they've developed were uh, contained in a vending machine and you were to go up to the NCAA propaganda vending machine and one of the selection options, one of the buttons, instead of getting uh, Diet Coke, you got what is the NCAA. Here is what you would get. The NCAA is a diverse, voluntary, unincorporated association of four-year colleges, conferences, affiliated associations, and other educational institutions. Or you would get the National Collegiate Athletic Association is a member-led organization dedicated to the well-being and lifelong success of college athletes with more than 1,100 member colleges and universities. The NCAA is united around one goal, creating opportunities for college athletes. Or you might get this. Every year, the NCAA and its members equip more than half a million student athletes with skills to succeed on the playing field, in the classroom, and throughout life. They do that by prioritizing academics, well-being, and fairness. So there you have it. That's the NCAA in a nutshell. All right. So where did I get those quotes? Well, they come from three important sources. First, the NCAA Constitution itself. And, and the NCAA Constitution uh, in Article 4, which I think is titled Organization and talks about the organizational structure and all that, it provides a basic definition of the NCAA. The other source for some of those fluffy quotes comes from the NCAA's Form 990 nonprofit tax filings. Remember, the NCAA is a nonprofit organization and it has to file these Form 990s. We discussed them a little bit in episode two. 
but they have to describe what they do and what they are. And they have put together these, these grand, broad, vague, fluffy characterizations that really don't do justice to the way that the NCAA actually operates. And then you have information that the NCAA publishes on its website, which is which is a train wreck. <laughs> it's it's uh, very hard to find the, the material that you're looking for. It changes all the time. It's internally inconsistent. It's incomplete, and it just reflects to me the NCAA uh, does all of these things for public relations purposes, and that's true for all these descriptions of what the NCAA is. And they want to create this, this very generalized, vague impression that the NCAA is this one big, happy amateurism family under this big umbrella that encompasses 1,100 institutions. And that could not be further from the truth. So what I'm going to do now is just talk a little bit about the some facts and figures, some of the demographics of the NCAA. And then I'm going to segue into a discussion starting really in 1973 and going into uh, 2014 to look at the ways that big-time football has uh, engaged in this slow-rolling but nevertheless hostile takeover of uh, the NCAA and the NCAA governance process. But to start with some of the stuff that uh, is pretty generic and I, don't, I think uncontroversial is that uh, the NCAA has about half a million athletes competing in 1,100 schools across three divisions. And uh, I'll just give you some quick numbers about the divisions and talk a little bit about what their essential character is and, and how they're different. So Division One, the, the top division in terms of the level of competition and also the power and prestige of the universities, all the big-time universities are in Division One. But there are 350 schools and divided into 31 conferences. So this conference structure is really kind of the local product of the NCAA. And it's traditionally been based on geography, some uh, similar philosophy, uh, school size, and uh, the school capacity to, to field teams. And a primary purpose of the conference format is to allow schools to put together schedules and you know regionalize the operations of uh, you know, managing college athletics. So um, there are 185,000 athletes in Division One, and that's 37% of all of all athletes. 37% of that 500,000. And then Division Two has 310 schools, also divided into conferences. There are 125,000 athletes in Division Two, and that comprises uh, 25% of, of the 500,000 uh, association-wide athletes. And then Division Three uh, has 438 schools. It's the largest NCAA division, and it has 195,000 athletes, almost 40% of that uh, half a million number of total athletes in the NCAA. Each division has its own governance structure. They have their own independent governing 
bodies and they all look a lot alike in that respect and um, the only association wide governing body is the NCAA Board of Governors but I'll just say this as a practical matter the only two significant governing bodies in the entire NCAA system are the NCAA Board of Governors and the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, uh, as we're going to discuss uh, when we talk about uh, you know powerful football interests kind of taking over the governance of the NCAA. Some important di- distinctions among the three divisions. Division I is the most commercialized. It uh, gives more scholarships than the other divisions, and it awards what are called headcount or full scholarships. So in the big-time sports uh, of uh, revenue-producing football and men's basketball that reside in Division I, those athletes get a full scholarship. It can't be broken up, and that's called a headcount scholarship. For non-revenue sports and for all sports in Division II, the scholarships are partial scholarships and the coaches can break them up and spread them around and use them as they see fit. And these scholarships are athletics scholarships. I I discussed that in episode two, that the quid pro quo for an athletic scholarship is that the athlete provides a skill, talent, labor in exchange for tuition and, and a seat in a classroom. And that is essentially a business relationship. And when you get to division three, there are no athletics scholarships. And a lot of critics of big-time college sports point to the Division Three model as the way it ought to be done. It's the true student-athlete. And so you have uh, mostly private schools in Division Three. Overwhelming number of schools in Division Three are private. Uh, in Divisions One and Two, you have um, more public schools. So two things I want to point out real quick about these numbers and about the demographics. In Division One, the only sports that make money are Power Five football and men's basketball. And in uh, Division One, uh, top-level football, schools are allowed to give 85 scholarships each year. In men's basketball, it's 13 each year. So when you look at the number of athletes who are true revenue-producing athletes, you multiply 85 by 65 for football, and you get 5,525 athletes. And for basketball, you multiply uh, 65 schools times 13 scholarships, and that's 845. So those two numbers combined are 6,370 revenue producing athletes, a tiny, tiny fraction of the NCAA's 500,000 athletes. And those 6,370 athletes provide all of the value in the entire product across all three divisions. Because once you drop down below the power five, you have products that don't make money. And from really from the FBS grouping of schools, and that's the 120 schools that are in the big-time football sweepstakes. When you drop below that, every other product in every other NCAA division, meaning the rest of the Division I, all of Division II, all of Division Three, lose money. And the de- that demographic of the revenue-producing athletes, uh, it's also important to understand that the overwhelming majority of those athletes are African-American And the in-system beneficiaries across the three divisions are overwhelmingly white. The other thing that those numbers point out 
is that the vast majority of NCAA schools pay for their athletics costs and their entire athletics department programming out of general university operating funds. And the critics of big-time college sports like to complain and moan and whine that big-time college sports really loses money and they're having to take money from academic programs to fund all these lavish buildings and salaries and all that. And that's, again, a, a legitimate criticism, but it ignores the fact that the rest of the entire college sports uh, industry pays for its athletics programs through general university operating expenses, which means that the tuition dollars for students who aren't participating in intercollegiate athletics at those schools is subsidizing the athletics department. And that's the rule, not the exception. And that's an important thing to understand. And so now we're going to segue into a discussion of the milestones in the Power Five and big-time football's hostile takeover of the NCAA and NCAA governance. And we're going to start with that 1973 decision to to separate the association into three separate divisions. And the NCAA has a document that describes its three divisions, and uh, we're going to use that as a springboard to the discussion of this first milestone. It says, our three divisions, and it says the NCAA's three divisions were created in 1973 to align like-minded campuses in the areas of philosophy, competition, and opportunity. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, it's, you know, it's just so purposeful and majestic and regal. But the fact of the matter is, it's not really true. The reason that these divisions were created in 1973 was the big-time football interests demanded it. And before 1973, there were only two broad divisions, university and college, which generally reflected the big schools and the small private schools. And, you know, kind of is somewhat correlated to how you actually define what a university is versus what a college is. But it was kind of rough justice. And, um, you know, that was that was early in the NCAA's regulatory life. And TV wasn't really as big a component of the business model. But by 1973, you know, the NCAA had been in the TV era since, you know, 1951. So we got two decades of the growth, expansion, and evolution of the TV technology and its relationship to big-time college football. So this was really the beginning of the big-time football interests starting to flex their muscles and to take a confrontational position with the NCAA's kind of status quo thinking. And it was the big-time powerful football interests that demanded a separation uh, beyond university and college. And they wanted three divisions and all of the big-time football interests were placed in division one. And that was for the explicit purpose of segregating and protecting big time football's financial interests. That is the long and short of it. And then we have the next wave of big time football asserting its will 
in the NCAA. And this is a much more strategic approach, and this covers the period of 1977 to 1984. And in 1977, a group of powerful football schools consisting of what are now uh, the Power Five, with a, with a couple of exec- exceptions I'll address in a second, but they formed the College Football Association. And one of the fundamental purposes of that association was to harness all of this uh, football energy and market potential. And the CFA began to assert its interests in a, in a much more uh, formal way. And then in 1978, the CFA interests went to the NCAA and demanded that the football interests be further segregated within Division I. And they wanted uh, the top football conferences and, and schools. And there were about 11 football conferences, including what are now the, the Power Five, that really are the market of big-time college football. And these interests uh, went to the NCAA and said, we want to be separated out from the rest of the Division I football interests because we're the, you know, the, we're the power players. And so th- at the demand of the CFA and under threats to leave the NCAA, the NCAA acquiesced and created two divisions within Division I that were defined explicitly by football interests, and those were Division 1A, which all the big-time football schools were in, and then Division 1AA, which had the lower-level football schools, that, that you know, schools uh, and conferences that fielded football teams but weren't really money makers. And then between 1978 and 1981, the CFA began aggressively pursuing its economic interests with the NCAA. And remember, uh, the NCAA had an absolute monopoly on televised football between 1951 and 1981. And the big-time uh, football schools had very little say in what those contracts looked like. And so they were trying to gain a little more power, a little more leverage to have more control over what those TV contracts looked like. And through a series of negotiations that ultimately uh, weren't very fruitful, a subset of CFA members at the time, defined largely by Southern football interests and uh, interests that that, uh, comprise what are now the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12, filed a lawsuit in the District Court of Oklahoma, a federal suit under antitrust laws, challenging the NCAA's exclusive contract uh, and the, the football schools contended that the NCAA's exclusive contract rights violated antitrust laws and essentially froze the big-time football interests out of negotiating their own TV deals. That suit was filed by the University of Georgia Athletics Association and the University of Oklahoma Board of Regents, and that case came to be known as Board of Regents, and I mentioned that in episode one, I think maybe a little bit in episode two, and we're going to talk a lot about that when we get to the antitrust cases, but that single suit changed the face of college sports in America. 
And uh, the district court in 1981 agreed with the powerful football schools that the NCAA was indeed acting as a monopoly in a classic cartel. And it struck down the TV contracts. The NCAA appealed to the Tenth Circuit, which affirmed in a split decision, a two-to-one decision, the decision of the district court. And then the NCAA appealed to the United States Supreme Court, which in 1984 agreed with the Tenth Circuit and the district court that the NCAA's behavior was uh, classic cartel behavior, and uh, they acted as an unlawful monopoly in their uh, football contracts, struck down the contracts, and left to the free market the future of big-time college football and really the future of college sports. There are really two two eras in college sports. There's the before Board of Regents era and the after Board of Regents era. And one of the important consequences of Board of Regents is that the football product, the big-time football product, what is now the Power Five product, has complete autonomy financially and complete financial freedom from the NCAA. And the college football playoff, for example, has absolutely nothing to do with the NCAA. The NCAA uh, doesn't market that playoff, it doesn't participate in that playoff, and it doesn't receive a penny of revenue from that playoff. So the big-time football schools have this entirely new relationship to the NCAA, and the football interests are in the driver's seat. And the NCAA, you know, is out of the big-time football business. It's lost its football empire. And it's consolation prize, essentially, is the Division I men's basketball tournament, which in the 1980s was beginning to gain steam and and the popularity of the game uh, increased. And the NCAA began putting all of its efforts, you know, at the national office level into developing the NCAA uh, basketball tournament brand and March Madness and, and, and all of that. And we're going to talk about all of that and the consequences that it had in this kind of triangle between the national office, big-time football, and then the uh, big-time basketball interests uh, when we get to laying the foundation for the business model. But now we're talking about governance. And from a governance standpoint, that Board of Regents decision gave the big-time football interests enormous power. And they uh, extended that power into... The next phase of the big-time football interests hostile takeover of NCAA governance, and that occurred in 1996. There was a fundamental change to NCAA governance, also football-driven, also at the demand of football interests, because their goal in all of these changes has been to to try to keep the money uh, home, to keep it within the the big-time schools that, that generate the money. And they wanted to do that by changing the one school, one vote form of, of uh, voting on NCAA legislation. And they wanted to go with a federated system that was, uh, you know, representative based. And all of a sudden, the one man, one vote uh governance structure is gone, and then you have this federated system that is defined by football interests, and then when you look specifically at who is eligible to hold those seats and what conferences have representation in selecting the governing uh, members, you see that at every level, top to bottom in Division One, the big-time football interests have protected themselves from an incursion by the small schools. 
And even at the least consequential, least powerful governance level in Division One, and that's the Division One Council that I guess uh, would be roughly analogous to a House of Representatives, but it doesn't really have that much power. But even at that level, the NCAA and the Power Five football interests have protected themselves from an uprising through weighted voting and jurisdictional limitations. And uh, on my blog, I've written about this, and I have walked through the the process of, you know, who exactly gets these governance seats, and uh, you know what the crossover is between the the board of governors and the division one uh, board of directors, and then what the council does. So instead of trying to go through that in minute, minute detail in this uh, episode, I'm just going to link in the show notes to the to the blog posts that that walk you through it and talk in more detail and and give you the numbers and and give you the exact language about how these weighted uh, voting procedures work and how the jurisdictional issues have been flushed out. And then I'm also going to cite to the NCAA uh, regulations that, that define all of these interests. And for right now, the important point to understand is that uh, Division One is controlled by uh, the Power Five interests. It's a football show, and everything beyond that is simply for public relations purposes. And also, and this is an important part of this too, uh, the NCAA needs to preserve the appearance of alignment with its nonprofit mission. So it's a nonprofit. It doesn't want to pay taxes. It doesn't pay taxes. And one way to hide the overt commercialization of the governance process itself is to try to play this one big happy amateurism family. And they've done that in in a number of different contexts. And then, in this is started in 2013, the Power Five launched its most recent power grab within the NCAA governance structure. And the timing of this is really important because it was during the pendency of the O'Bannon versus NCAA antitrust suit, which was the case that a lot of people have heard about. And that was specifically a name, image, and likeness case. And uh, a group of African-American current and former athletes, mostly basketball players, sued the NCAA, claiming that the NCAA's compensation limits on name, image, and likeness violated federal antitrust laws. And we're going to talk a lot about O'Bannon because that's going to bring us into the perfect storm. But during the pendency of that suit and the uncertainty it generated, and you have to remember when O'Bannon was filed, it got a lot of media attention because a lot of people thought, well, this is, this is going to be the fatal blow to the NCAA. This is going to be the sword in the heart of the amateurism business model. And so it got all kinds of attention. And the district court judge in that case, and this was in California, the Northern District of California, and her name is Claudia Wilkin. And Judge Wilkin uh, seemed to be receptive to the athlete's arguments and an antitrust challenge to NCAA compensation limits. That generated extraordinary concern and fear within the NCAA and the Power Five and and all of the big-time interests that kind of control the marketplace in college sports. So the big-time conferences trying to get 
ahead of the issue and and during the uncertainty and remember this is before the court has actually ruled and uh, when we talk about these antitrust cases i'm going to talk about it on two levels one what did the actual result do for athletes what did the court's ruling do and then that's a separate inqu inquiry from what the fear of what the judge may do uh, played out during the pendency of the suit. And so here we're talking about the NCAA and Power Five's fear of what Judge Wilkin was going to do. And they were afraid that that uh, she was just going to blow the doors on amateurism and we're looking at a free market for the value of athlete services. And that is the NCAA and Power Five's worst nightmare. So the, the Power Five was trying to get ahead of the game and they wanted to offer some benefits to athletes that were, were currently prohibited by NCAA amateurism-based compensation limits. So the Power Five go to the NCAA and say, we want to move our interests into an entirely separate classification. They were also threatening to, to leave the association altogether. They played the same card that they played in 73, 78, mid-90s, and they're doing it again in, in 2013 into 2015. So uh, the NCAA acquiesced, as it does, and created what is known now as the autonomy classification. And as that name suggests, the Power Five conferences and only the Power Five conferences are autonomy conferences. They have the exclusive authority to essentially operate completely outside of the NCAA legislative process in certain defined areas. And the, the Power Five used that power five autonomy status to give the athletes some additional benefits. And, and then when the, when the uh, district court's decision actually came out in, in 2014 and then was reviewed by the Ninth Circuit in 2015, the, the actual result of that case was actually less generous than what the autonomy schools, the power five schools, had pledged to offer, which speaks more to how little the athletes actually got out of O'Bannon. And one of the one of the prevailing myths about the, all this antitrust litigation, and particularly O'Bannon, is that the athletes came away with some big victory. It was really a symbolic victory because the court held that the NCAA was subject to antitrust scrutiny, that it, that its compensation limits did violate uh, antitrust laws. Uh, but the remedy it offered was very, very modest. So what you had, though, was this sort of power play by the Power Five. And now they are an association within an association in terms of legislation and policymaking. And they also have control of the NCAA governance system. So, so their autonomy is not at risk. The only association-wide governing body is the NCAA Board of Governors, and we're going to talk a lot about them because they have some very important uh, specific authorities under the NCAA Constitution and um, how they have managed a lot of the issues during the perfect storm says a lot about uh, who was actually calling the shots. And it's my belief that even though the NCAA Board of Gov Governors had the authority to step in and really direct, if not dictate, to the Power Five conferences whether and to what extent they would participate in fall football, instead uh, they just hit under their desk. In, in fact, in a, their August meeting, August 2020 meeting, and this is a week before the Power Five uh, conferences and schools are announcing their decision on fall football. The NCAA Board of Governors at its, um, at its meeting in August 
placed itself essentially on administrative leave, and uh, we're going to talk a lot about that, and I'm going to go through in, in detail the statement that they issued in connection with that meeting, and it was buried at the back of the minutes of the meeting. It wasn't something that got any immediate any media attention because it's not something that the NCAA or the Board of Governors wanted to draw attention to, but it essentially uh, halted for 12 to 24 months the NCAA's strategic planning initiative, and it fo instead the NCAA was focusing on uh, four or five things, and they all related to the NCAA trying to achieve the iron throne of college sports regulation. So they were going to go full steam ahead with their litigation, full steam ahead with their campaign in, in uh, Congress. But they essentially took themselves completely out of the game from a leadership standpoint, from a governance standpoint, when it came to the Power Five conference fall football decisions. And it, and it was just a stunning act of of cowardice in my judgment. And they had an opportunity, and, and I'm gonna talk about how they could have exercised authority, but they had the opportunity to stand up and really take a leadership role in a time of crisis, and, and they just dove under the desk. It was just one big synchronized desk dive by the people who are supposed to be in charge of this whole shooting match uh, and who are always spouting the NCAA values and issuing you know proclamations and resolutions that reaffirm all these uh, lofty goals you know I think part of the reason the Board of Governors did that and the timing clearly suggests this is that they're, they were powerless over the Power Five and the fall football decisions. Um, I don't think that's technically true based on their authority under the NCAA Constitution. But as a practical matter, they weren't going to, uh, you know, go toe to toe with uh, the Big Ten or the ACC or the SEC or the Pac-12 or the Big 12, any of those conferences. They weren't going to go toe to toe and say, you're doing the wrong thing. Everything else is shut down, and you need to shut down because it's not safe. There are too many unanswered questions. And that's what the rest of the entire NCAA system did, and they did it very quickly. But the reason they, they couldn't do that was because of this Board of Regents decision and the fact that they lost their football empire in 1984 and their consolation prize was Division I men's college basketball in the March Madness tournament. And they really were exposed as an impotent, flaccid uh, governing board. And I think they just didn't want to have to answer to that. And, you know, it was interesting when Mark Emmert was – uh, doing some public speaking. And he, he did less and less than that because the guy became a real liability. We'll talk about that too. But he was talking about the NCAA's fall uh, sports decisions. And they had this 50% threshold that if 50% of the schools in any division decided that they weren't going to participate, then the entire division didn't participate. And the division one met that threshold. And so they, you know, ended the, all the fall sports in division one, except for <laughs> the power five. And when Mark Emmert was making public statements about uh, whether Division One was going to go forward with its championships, and one thing I guess I should mention is that the NCAA only does championships. They're not involved in regular season uh, programming, and so they don't do contracts with ESPN or um, CBS or Turner or Fox or any, any of these big media outlets for regular season content. The conferences do that. And then individual schools do that. But the NCAA is only in the business of championships, and it sponsors 90 of them, 85 of which lose money and are subsidized by the Division I men's basketball tournament. But uh, when the NCAA is talking about 
uh, big time football and the college football playoff, which has nothing to do with the NCAA, is completely outside of the NCAA because of Board of Regents and because big time football has financial freedom from the NCAA. The NCAA is very coy about how it characterizes that. So when I, I listened to an interview uh, with Emmert where he was, uh, you know, describing what was happening in Division One and the fact that uh, with this 50% threshold, uh, the fall sports championships just kind of got, they all went down quickly because that 50% threshold had been met. But then as an aside, in like this tiny little, you know, dependent clause in a sentence, he says, you know, that the big time football schools have their own championship. And then he moves on. And in that tiny little uh, dependent clause, Mark Emmert is airbrushing 50 years of some of the most important historical events in NCAA history. And Mark Emmert can't come out and say out loud, just as Miles Brand before him couldn't, that big time football owns the NCAA and that the NCAA is so dependent on its consolation prize, which is the money from March Madness, that uh, it will do anything that the big time football schools, the power five schools and conferences tell them to do. And to talk honestly about that just exposes the entire system as a sham. And so what's really happening here, and we're going to talk a lot about this when we get to the relationship between the national office, big-time football, and big-time basketball. You know, again, that's the Rosetta Stone of this whole business model, is that what Mark Emmert and, <laughs> and all the NCAA uh, bureaucratic in-system stakeholders, beneficiaries are doing is preserving their gravy train. So if the Power Five left the NCAA, with it would go every piece of value in the big-time college sports Division I men's basketball product. March Madness would be as compelling as a pickup game at the YMCA. And all of a sudden, these massive salaries, Mark Emmert's $4 million salary, uh, you know, all these executives that are making some over a million dollars and some in high six figures, that goes away. And so does Mark Emmert's, you know, whining and dining with the rich and powerful. And, you know, uh, he gets to play the big shot. And it's a, and uh, without big time basketball, Mark Emmert, he has to find a, a whole new gig. You know, one of the things that got teased out in the O'Bannon case, and, and this comes from some uh, questions that Emmert was asked on cross-examination at the trial, is that the NCAA executive class, the people who are the primary beneficiaries of all this March Madness money, are among the highest paid nonprofit employees in the United States of America. <laughs> you know, higher than, than the Red Cross, higher than the American Cancer Association or Society, higher than uh, all of these noble uh, nonprofits. This salary structure among NCAA executives is so out of line with anything else that exists in the market when you compare what the NCAA does to what these other nonprofits do, that, that it is, it's embarrassing. But Mark Emmert, he took the witness stand and self-righteously defended his job and his mission. And, you know, that's, that's what I guess what he gets, he gets paid $4 million a year to do.
And I think the Board of Governors, you know, had, they had the opportunity actually to educate the public on why they were powerless and to talk about whether the, the current model is a healthy model. But they didn't want any part of that because everybody's happy with the status quo. All of the things that each of the stakeholders, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries want have been worked out uh, after Board of Regents and anything that disrupts that status quo is bad news to these people. And the NCAA Board of Governors knew they had an obligation to speak. They had the opportunity to speak. And they they <laughs> ran and hid. And uh, it, it was really, that was really an exclamation point on uh, how the NCAA has lost its way and has very little concern about the interests and well-being of the athletes. And this was a, an unprecedented situation particularly on the public health uh, side. And while the rest of the world was resolving the uncertainty that floated around coronavirus by erring on the side of safety, the Power Five, with the tacit approval of the NCAA and its, and its chief governing board, resolved the uncertainty in favor of money. And that's the long and short of what happened uh, with fall football. But to really show you how disingenuous the NCAA has been in pushing its definition of itself, and in all of these ways, you know, through in its constitution, to the IRS, uh, on its website, you know, to the outside world, all, all of the ways that it misleads the public about its fundamental mission came into the sharpest focus for me in a 2015 lawsuit. And uh, that lawsuit was filed by a few former University of North Carolina athletes against both the NCAA and UNC. And uh, it was titled McCants uh, versus UNC and NCAA. And the basic theory was that because of the, the, the sham courses that UNC had offered over the years, that they were cheated out of um, an adequate uh, education and um, it was in, an interesting play on a, on a legal theory in some cases that have, have run through the North Carolina state courts because the North Carolina state constitution says that uh, residents of North Carolina are constitutionally entitled to a sound basic education. And that's been the basis for some lawsuits um, at the state level on, in terms of how money's divided and, you know, rich systems getting more and poor systems getting less. And they've used that constitutional language to try to resolve some of those inequities. But that was kind of the thinking going into this lawsuit. And But the legal theories were really based on equitable principles, you know, implied contract and breach of fiduciary duty. And and that's that's one that has been a kind of a tag-on claim in a lot of these big antitrust suits. It's never been litigated. And I think that there's, um, you know, you could make an interesting case with the right plaintiffs and uh, the right state law and the right circumstances under uh, an equitable theory. But, but anyway, that's, that was the flag they were flying under. And they basically were saying that the NCAA and UNC, because they have injected themselves, particularly the NCAA, so let's just talk about the NCAA. UNC is kind of a different, a different kettle of fish because of their relationship to the students. But the NCAA portrays itself as promoting education. That's its fundamental purpose. That's the basis for its nonprofit status. 
And so much of its rhetoric goes to providing educational opportunities. And remember, it sets specific academic standards, both for admissions and for eligibility in Division One. That doesn't happen in Division Three. In Division Three, which is the you know no scholarship model, small private schools mostly, and the model that people point to when they're you know looking at what college sports ought to be. The universities make those decisions. The NCAA doesn't provide any criteria, uh, doesn't tell, essentially tell the Division Three schools how, you know, what the standards should be for admission and what the standards should be for eligibility. The schools are left to their own devices, which is the way it should be. <laughs> but in Division One, uh, we have this, this uh, intense competition in the talent acquisition market and everybody's looking to bend the rules to try to achieve a competitive advantage and av or avoid losing uh, a competitive advantage. The NCAA has minimum uh, academic requirements for admission and for eligibility. So the athletes were saying, and they were all African-American, and uh, they were saying that they were cheated out of, you know, the educational opportunity that they were signing up for because they were, they took some of these courses and that because of the fraud, they didn't get the, the benefit of their bargain. And uh, it was interesting uh, how they rolled up the issues because they, they filed a 100-plus page complaint and a substantial portion of it to really set the framework for, for their claims were all of these statements by the NCAA, by the NCAA president, by uh, the NCAA board of governors, by NCAA representatives, all of these task forces and commissions and committees that have done work uh, through the NCAA to promote the student athlete and promote uh, amateurism and promote the educational purpose of, of uh, the NCAA. All of these fluffy, highbrow philosophies that the NCAA uses as the basis for its business model and makes billions and billions of dollars off of. So the notion here is, here's what you said, now we're holding you to it. So I'm just going to read one example of that. This was from, this was, uh, I guess, in um, 2012. And so the plaintiff's lawyers, you know, pulled this quote from Mark Emmert's uh, 2012 State of the Association speech. And at the annual convention each year, the NCAA president gets up and makes a speech. And, you know, it's supposed to be uh, on the state of the association. So here's what Emmert said. We must be student-centered in all that we, that we do. The association was founded on the notion of integrating athletics into the educational experience. And we have to make sure we deliver on that hundred-year-old promise. We have to remind ourselves that this is about the young men and women we ask to come to our schools for a great educational experience. We have to collectively deliver on those promises. That's why we're in this business. And there are pages and pages and pages in this complaint of uh, statements just like that. So the plaintiffs were saying, the athletes were saying, this is what you claim to be about. And you have assumed a duty, a legal duty to us, to make good on those promises. How did the NCAA respond to that? They filed a motion to dismiss, categorically denying, one, that they had any relationship with the student-athletes that would give rise to any legal duty, and that even if they did, Nothing that they say, nothing that they do should be taken literally, and that those are just quote-unquote vague 
hortatory statements. And I'm going <laughs> to, I had to look that one up. Uh, I'll get to that in just a second. And so this is important. And this is, comes from a brief filed by the NCAA in this lawsuit. And they are speaking to all of these statements that, um, that the plaintiffs identified that came from the NCAA and all of its representatives. So the NCAA writes, and this is to a federal court, and while plaintiffs, the athletes, rely heavily on position papers and opinion statements evaluating whether the NCAA's current bylaws reflect the best way to achieve the goal of making education the paramount factor in collegiate athletics decision-making, such policy discussions do not change the legal analysis of plaintiffs' claims. And the NCAA um, puts in italics, policy and legal, because they want to draw a clear distinction between the statements that it makes as mere policy suggestions and hortatory exclamations versus what they can be held legally responsible for. This is another way of the NCAA saying every piece of rhetoric that comes from the NCAA that um, promotes our core values or supports our core values means nothing. It means nothing. And this is just, in my judgment, a stunning uh, admission against the NCAA's interests. And essentially, they're saying, you know, when we uh, make all these proclamations, and remember, they're making these proclamations in their, in their constitution, in their, in their statements, their descriptions to the IRS, and in information they publish on their website, and that they take to Congress and offer to Congress, and that they take to press conferences, and that they take to their, uh, their army of uh, NCAA-friendly journalists who will print anything they put in front of them. So they're using this as an offensive weapon in public relations to achieve their business model. But when they are called to account for it, when they are called to stand by it, they say this is nothing more than a real estate agent describing a dilapidated house as a real charmer with great potential. And guess what? The federal district court judge in that case dismissed the NCAA. So the NCAA won. They convinced the federal judge that uh, vague and hortatory proclamations have no legal relevance. And so this is the other uh, aspect of this that, that I find really disturbing. And that is the extent to which the NCAA lawyers are, have basically been driving the, the train on NCAA policy and the future of intercollegiate sports since the beginning of this per perfect storm. And I referenced this in, in my first episode. And this is, uh, goes to the comparison to big tobacco. This is a big tobacco move. You know, what, what the NCAA said in that McCants case regarding all of its public comments uh, supporting its core values and, and that they are irrelevant. They're just, uh, you know, that's, that's just some policy stuff that has no legal significance. That's what you would hear from Big Tobacco. And that's what you get from lawyers who defend Big Tobacco. And that's what you get from lawyers who defend the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And that is the voice that is dominant in the decision-making of big-time college sports right now, and it um, really ramped up during the perfect storm. Okay, 
So, um, and we'll talk more about that that McCants case later on when we're talking about the litigation that's that's uh, unfolded during the perfect storm. And again, that that period is 2006 to the present and extending into 2021. So, I just want to give you real quick my description of what the NCAA is, and 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 it really, I think of it in terms of the different personas that it has presented to uh, different stakeholders. And, and then I'm going to drill down to what it really actually does. So the first persona is the one that I've talked a lot about in this uh, episode, and that's its public relations persona defined by its marketing campaigns and its slogans, all the things that were listed in this, in this McCants lawsuit that they denied, you know, they had any, any responsibility for. Second, the second persona is the legal persona that that it uses to define itself in its foundational documents, and that's the Section 4, Article 4 of the NCAA Constitution that goes to organization. And then in their federally mandated filings like the Form 990. The third persona is the is the organizational persona def, you know, defined in litigation. And its fourth persona is, is its practical operating persona, which, uh, as defined by one of its uh, former presidents, Miles Brand, who I'm going to talk a lot about here, has three essential components. It's, you have the association, which is all of the constituent parts of the NCAA. Then you have the membership, which are the individual member institutions, the universities and colleges. And then you have the national office, which Brand very modestly describes uh, as you know being nothing more than a, a conduit for the will of the membership and the will of the people. And then you have its true persona. And its true persona and the one that exists uh, really only in, in its national office and is defined by its relationship with big-time football and big-time men's basketball and is hidden from the world um, really has uh, five essential purposes. The first is to do the bidding of the Power Five football interests. The second is to negotiate the most profitable television marketing, advertising, and promotional deals in the marketplace for the commercial exploitation of the Division I men's basketball tournament, or March Madness. Why? Because that is the NCAA's only source of meaningful re uh, revenue. Uh, third, its true persona is... Uh, geared towards enforcing and promoting its anti-compensation rules and its anti-revenue producing athlete narratives so it doesn't have to share the revenue with the athletes who generate it. Uh, four, uh, its true purpose is to pursue its anti-revenue producing athlete litigation and legislation strategy in an effort to achieve the Iron Throne of college sports regulation. And one of the other things that I haven't talked about yet, and this is going to be a big component of, um, of this whole litigation strategy and the congressional strategy, because every penny of the NCAA's money comes from the Division I men's basketball tournament, and it's disproportionately dominated at the high value level by Power Five uh, players, and to a lesser extent, the, the Big East, you, you have 
all of the legal expenses in these massive uh, antitrust suits in the congressional campaign being paid out of revenue from the Division I men's basketball tournament from March Madness. And, and Division I men's basketball has the highest concentration of African-American athletes of any sport in any NCAA division. And there's just a massive regressive diversion of wealth from the these black laborers to these um, extraordinarily well-off white interests. And big time football doesn't pay a penny for legal fees. Uh, everything that uh, that that goes into defending amateurism-based compensation limits comes from revenue generated by Division One men's basketball players, and uh, that's an important thing to understand. And then the final purpose that the NCAA serves is to placate and curry favor with all of the various constituent groups that could have the potential to oppose it. So over the years, uh, and through a massive redistribution of wealth, because the NCAA takes that March Madness money and spreads it around to enough stakeholders to keep them both dependent and compliant. And I'm looking at the 2017 NCAA nonprofit tax return. That's the, the most recent one that's publicly available. And what a lot of people don't understand is that the NCAA gives block grants to divisions two and divisions three. It spends almost, or spent in 2017, $150 million to run championships in all three divisions. So the NCAA is picking up that tab that's paid for by, by revenue producing men's basketball players in, in the power five. And then you have about 25 million that the NCAA picks up for high-end conferencing and meet and greet and, uh, you know, flying people all over the place so that they can, uh, you know, pretend to be doing something productive for the student-athletes. But in those three categories alone, you're looking at $250 million. $250 million. That's uh, 25% of the NCAA's budget. And I haven't even gotten to all of the ridiculous expenses that go to the NCAA bureaucracy. So, you know, the NCAA claims that 90 cents on the dollar goes back to the student-athletes. That's ridiculous. And in fact, from its own uh, Form 990 tax return, a little over half of the money that comes in, of this you know $1.1 billion that comes in, goes back in the form of grants. The rest of it goes into this black hole that the NCAA, you know, names in categories that appear to be consistent with their nonprofit mission, but they're really not. So, you know, you have the NCAA uh, doing everything in its power to keep enough people happy in system that they're not going to rock the boat. So I, I went a little long on this episode. I'm trying to keep them under an hour. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about presidents really in two contexts. One, the NCAA president and what authorities that position has um, exclusively within its 
uh, leadership domain and its governance domain. And we're going to need to go deep into the NCAA Division I manual and the ex uh, executive regulations. And buried in that are some really crucial powers that the NCAA president has that Mark Emmert uh, doesn't want to talk about and uh, Miles Brand didn't want to talk about. And then the other uh, context in which we're going to talk about presidents are university presidents. And under the NCAA governance structure, university presidents are required to sit in positions, uh, representative positions, both on the board of governors and on the division one board of directors. And that is a result of a movement that began in the 1920s that insisted on presidential leadership over college athletics because it was believed that the presidents were in the best position, perhaps the only position, to rein in commercial commercialization and professionalization of big-time college sports. And so this notion of presidential leadership has been percolating for decades, and it really caught fire in 1991 with the Knight Commission report um, on intercollegiate athletics. The, and this was really probably the most consequential of its five reports. And it built the entire uh, leadership model of uh, big time college sports around presidential leadership. So we're going to take a good hard look at uh, how that has played out. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to say, and, and I've said before uh, in some of my blog posts, that the only thing worse than bad leadership is putting someone in a position of leadership who refuses to accept the responsibilities of that role. And that's exactly what has happened in my judgment with this presidential leadership reform effort. And, and the, leader, the presidential leadership theory is uh, perfectly correlated to all these reform efforts designed to, you know, to, to really criticize the big time college sports model and find a way to get it under control. And as we're gonna see, the presidential leadership reform model has been an absolute miserable failure. Yet the NCAA governing documents and the overarching philosophy of institutional control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics still falls on university presidents. And it is my view that the failure of presidential leadership throughout the modern history of the NCAA and the big time college sports interests is the primary reason why external regulators have stepped in to do for college sports what the leadership uh, refuses to do. And that is to, uh, at the very least, bring the business model into the 21st century. And so it's uh, ironic to me that some of these same university presidents that created the situation that we have now are now saying that uh, these external regulators should be eliminated by these draconian federal protections and immunities. And that goes to the heart of, of some of the dysfunction in this perfect storm. And, and, and we'll tease that out. But we first have to take a good hard look at, at how presidents came into the picture, what their role is, and uh, what they have and have not done. And so that wraps up this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll be back at you in 48 hours. Hope to see you then.